and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guests today are Paul Musgrave and Stephen Ward. Paul's an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and Stephen is an associate professor in politics and international studies at the University of Cambridge. Welcome to the show, guys. Glad to be here. Thanks, John. So you two have joined forces to do some really interesting uh, and policy-relevant research on something called tripwire forces. Let's start by just getting introduced to this concept. What are tripwire forces? Yeah, so the notion of a tripwire has kind of two ex uh, existences. And the first existence is an academic um, postulate or hypothesis that having a small number of forces, normally U.S. forces, deployed somewhere in what could be a crisis situation can lead to greater commitment by the country that placed those forces there. And the classic example during the Cold War uh, is the Berlin Brigade. Berlin um, was divided into several pieces and was in, deep in the heart of East Germany. Uh, and the American, British, and French sector, West Berlin, um, had U.S. and allied forces deployed there. Uh, and there's a famous passage from Tom Schelling, who's one of the intellectual founders of modern security studies. Uh, and Schelling talked about the fact that these troops, there's only a few thousand of them, uh, were stationed there to hold back the entire Soviet army. How could they do that? It wasn't that they were super good troops. Um, it was that they were there to die. Uh, to die bravely, and through their death guarantee that the United States and the Western allies wouldn't stop there, that the Cold War, if it turned hot, would really, really turn hot. Uh, and that's kind of the first um, level of existence, which is this idea that this was the explanation that explained what the purpose of those forces were there for. And it was all about uh, Cold War nuclear strategy. Uh, and this is something that has since become more general. And if you took uh, undergraduate or graduate courses, you might actually get this as like a quiz question, you know, define the true tripwire. Uh, and the second is, there's actually folks out there who are deployed, right? Uh, and there's been a lot of policy debate about what a tripwire force is. And Steve knows these examples uh, really well. Um, you know, folks like Cato's Doug Bandau um, have been very critical about some of these deployments. If you do a search for tripwire, uh, Doug's book is going to come up. Um, and there we're talking about 30,000, 40,000 American troops in South Korea being defined as a tripwire. In the actual policy discourse, you will also hear people talk about as few as, what, Steve, five, ten American troops uh, sometimes being referred to as a tripwire deployment. So there's this kind of narrow and hypothetical academic, and then there's this big, important, but kind of loosely defined policy term that's out there. So I would just say, I, th I think I, I agree with Paul's definition. Um, if you put a gun to my head and asked me to define a tripwire, it would be a, a deployment of troops um, whose purpose is to deter uh, not by um, enhancing or bolstering combat capability, but rather by automating escalation after an attack. But then I would also suggest, uh, or just note, I suppose, that like um, you rarely see, almost never see uh, the term tripwire defined really concretely. Even policymakers who talk about it disagree with each other and contradict each other throughout the record of this concept over the last 70 years about what a tripwire is. Is it a division? Is it a handful of jets? Right. Um, uh, so it's a very, very murky concept. Really, 
uh, I think it, it's a sort of metaphor um, that that actually enables continued murkiness in terms of how this, this sort of thing works. Yeah, I, I would, uh, you know, we're on video, we can see each other, our listeners can't see each other, I've been vigorously nodding the whole time, uh, which is that there is kind of this textbook definition, and then if you go hunting for uh, actual real-world instances of this textbook definition, you will find that it is not clear-cut. Um, and that's why, you know, to even just to kick off this conversation, we're talking about two different uh, ranges of applications of the term that have something to do with each other, but they really are bolted together metaphorically more than this is kind of a strict definition. Uh, and this is one of the things that I think uh, really intrigued us in this project, because getting into the question of what a tripwire is, is essential to understanding what a tripwire means. You guys write, successful extended deterrence requires that threats be credible. Yet credibility may be difficult to achieve if the interests to be protected from attack are geographically distant, strategically unimportant in themselves, and difficult to defend. These conditions describe several current U.S. security partners. The first thing I just want to note as we're talking about tripwires from the big picture is the rather astonishing fact, um, though it's infrequently acknowledged, that it's a flagship feature of U.S. foreign policy to commit to difficult to defend, far off, and strategically unimportant states and interests. And I feel like that should be noted. This, this notion of hands tying, which you guys uh, mentioned in the paper, the idea is to tie the hands of US leadership, as you guys said, to essentially force them to go to war for peripheral interests by sacrificing US service members based overseas, and then exploiting those casualties to trigger pro-war sentiment in the citizenry. According to logic of tripwire forces, that's how we lock ourselves into wars that we wouldn't otherwise fight. It's just a pretty dark, strange, Levian Cold War logic that I'm surprised doesn't strike more Americans as insane. Uh, yeah, I, I love the term strange Levian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And, and I would, again, just sort of note, and I, I think it's, it's, you either don't know this or we've, or we've forgotten it, that this is actually a co really controversial concept, right? That that actually, if you if you go back and you and you sort of um, read what people are saying in the immediate aftermath, the kind of introduction of the metaphor of the tripwire, it's not like, oh yeah, great idea, let's do that, right? It's it's very much like this will never work, um, uh, right? You're talking about the automatic escalation to thermonuclear war, which just is wild, right? Uh, not, not to mention all of the sort of weird ethical and moral objections that that you're raised, right? Um, and yet, what's really, what's really, I think, intriguing is that it this concept doesn't die. It becomes, as you say, central to uh, to U.S. foreign policy, uh, arguably uh, to the, to the present day, right? So that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I think John, you've got it exactly right with this kind of strange Levian. Um, description of what's going on. And if you just think about it, just go back to that Tom Schelling description of the Berlin Brigade. Um, we've got our, you know, brave boys, they're in Berlin. Um, you know, the Soviets are uh, cutting them down. Presumably, either this is going to be broadcast, or at least it's going to be reported. Um, and it's that bravery of their sacrifice that is then going to push U.S. policymakers um, over the edge, that they are going to decide to continue to escalate, that they'll commit. 
and crucially, that they would not have committed to escalation in the absence of those deaths. And this is what really makes the whole thing weird, because it is just this idea that tripwire deaths in themselves are part of a strategy of locking yourself into a credible deterrent posture. Uh, you know, when we talk about something like um, West Berlin, or, you know, I, I sometimes feel bad for our colleagues in the Baltics because, you know, we're kind of dismissing their strategic importance, but, uh, you know, in, in the, you know, balance of Europe, uh, their value is, is more moral than it is strategic. Um, you know, we're talking about things that really don't matter in themselves. Uh, the Soviets conquer West Berlin. Well, okay. It's literally indefensible, uh, anyway. Uh, but the idea is that we have to have our deterrent threat be credible. We have to lock ourselves in and that the Soviets would not have found a deterrent threat to be credible in the absence of the belief that the shedding of American blood would have led to uh, some greater involvement. And it's kind of a belief that American positions are not inherently credible in themselves. Um, and, and in the 1970s and at other times when this was discussed in the context of possibly moving uh, U.S. forces out of Europe or, or discussing U.S. force postures, uh, there was just an argument saying, like, we don't need to make our position in Europe super credible. Um, obviously, we're committed to the defense of Western Europe. They're democracies, they're trading partners, they share values. Like, this is not something that we need to do. Uh, and yet, tripwire logic, as unpopular and as sporadically accepted as it was by folks who were there kind of present at the creation um, and during those first few years, because it's such a neat story, it's kind of got that um, Freakonomics vibe to it. Um, you know, it's one weird trick to deterring Joseph Stalin or Nikita Khrushchev. Um, and it's got that really neat vibe, and it really allows for, I think, the use of small deployments of American troops to be highly leveraged in a strategic sense. Um, and that really proves very attractive to people. But the key for us is... We've not really seen the strongest possible test of a tripwire uh, force, right? Like, nobody ever attacked that deployment in West Berlin. There have been other times when American troops who were forward deployed have been attacked, um, and it hasn't led to thermonuclear war, obviously, um, but that has never been attacked. And so we were just thinking uh, several years ago as we got into this project, okay, does this really work? Um you know, does it really matter that in the context of all of these other great, huge, titanic interests and risks and costs that are at stake, um, that the fate of a few dozen or a few hundred U.S. troops would really tip the balance as much as, as tripwire theories suggest it should? And that's where this paper really uh, enters into the discussion. Yeah, so you guys published a paper in the journal Foreign Policy Analysis. I'll provide it, a link to it in the show notes where you note what you just you just made note of, Paul, that these beliefs about tripwire forces have never really been rigorously examined. And you guys try to take up that responsibility as yourselves. And you guys decided to conduct surveys to test these tripwire claims against public opinion. So just tell us how you conducted the surveys and what the results were. So um, I'll, I'll just uh, f first sort of t talk a little bit about why we did surveys. Um, so I think Paul was Paul was kind of uh, right. One of the things that Paul just said, um, one might take as, as actually evidence in favor of tripwire theory, right? Which is that, yeah, no one ever, the Soviets didn't attack West Berlin 
throughout the Cold War, right? So doesn't that mean it works? Um, and no, uh, we can't. We can't. We can't necessarily interpret um, the absence or relative paucity of tripped tripwires um, as evidence that tripwires cause the absence of attacks, right? Um, so this is the the case for a variety of reasons. One of which is that tripwire deployments uh, are often they often co-vary with other things like treaty commitments that might be doing the the deterrent work. Um, another problem uh, is that um, that actually uh, decision makers uh, have been really at, at times really hesitant to deploy tripwire deployments unless they're really really sure that they won't be attacked. Um, right, and so uh, I, I, and so if that's the case, then there's a whole bunch of things that that might co-vary with uh, the deployment of U.S. troops abroad. Uh, and explain variation in um, challenges to positions, right? So observational studies are very difficult. Um, survey experiments make sense uh, because they uh, allow us to make causal inferences and get around some of those um, uh, those endogeneity problems that that I was just uh, just talking about. Um, and they also make sense because what we think is the strongest version of the tripwire sort of uh, uh, theoretical mechanism runs through domestic political pressure, right? That, that there's a notion um, that has at times been made explicit uh, that, um, that uh, uh, leaders will be constrained by domestic opinion, right? So this means uh, that actually this is, uh, uh, this is ripe for uh, uh, survey experimental analysis, right? So basically what we did, uh, and Paul can get into some of the specifics because um, we, we we actually did a couple of different uh, uh, designs, right? Um, but basically, what we did was describe a scenario to a respondent that we recruited online, um, and very so these were scenarios that were kind of about um, uh, potential uh, sort of contexts in which the United States might think about intervening militarily uh, to support a partner. Uh, and we varied um, some key elements uh, of these scenarios randomly. Uh, so, for instance, in one of our experiments, um, some people would read uh, that um, uh, in, in a context in which American troops uh, were present in a foreign country and the foreign country had been attacked, um, uh, there were no U.S. casualties uh, resulting from the attack. And some other random, randomly assigned people would read uh, that there had been some number of U.S. casualties resulting from an attack, right? Our hypothesis is that um, the people who read about U.S. casualties should be more supportive uh, of uh, U.S. intervention uh, than the people uh, who uh, read scenarios in which there hadn't been U.S. casualties. That's kind of the core of at least one version of the tripwire claim, right? And what we found basically was, uh, again, through uh, four different survey experiments, that there's just basically very little evidence of a strong tripwire effect. In other words, um, uh, attacks that result in American casualties don't really move the needle on support for intervention, support for escalation among Americans. So I'm going to pull a quote here because it, it brings up a, a related conclusion. So you're right. We find, uh, just repeating what you said, Steve, uh, we find at most limited support for the existence of a tripwire effect. These results are at odds with the primary theoretical logic underlying the claims about the strength of tripwire deterrence. Indeed, on balance, they are more consistent with results from the within-conflict casualty literature, which has consistently found that casualties reduce support 
for conflict. Let's talk a bit about that. It's not just that you guys found that tripwire forces don't obviously increase public support for war. It's that there's reason to believe it runs in the other direction. More casualties mean less support, as we've seen in U.S. wars from Vietnam to the war on terror. Talk about the tension in, in the research claims there. Yeah, so there's a really longstanding um, argument. I mean, partly this is just intuitive, right? If a war is going to cost you more in blood and treasure, you don't want to get into that war unless um, there's a really, really good reason to. Um, so the more blood, the more treasure, the less likely you're going to want to participate in a war. Uh, and this is something that has been borne out repeatedly. Um, John Mueller did early studies on this back in 1973 during the Vietnam era. And even as you look at casualties that have taken place closer to home in your state, in your county, um, there's a modest statistical decline um, as the casualties mount in your support for the war, the closer those casualties come for home. Uh, and these are casualties that uh, have been measured in the context of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which um, every death is a tragedy, uh, but they have been relatively low casualty wars compared to, say, the U.S. involvement in Vietnam um, or Russia's involvement in Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, Americans seem to be casualty averse. Um, there are other arguments that folks have made that say that Americans are also sens uh, sensitive to success, um, that the greater the prospects for success, the more likely they'll be willing to bear those um, costs. What's interesting about tripwire logic is that it is, I mean, what's a kind way to say this? It is almost antediluvian. It's almost a real-world fossil. It comes from an era before John Mueller. It comes from an era before contemporary theories of public opinion and foreign policy success. I mean, it dates back to, um, Steve, what, late 1950s is when Schelling starts talking about this? Um, and it, uh, it, it's just, it's an older theory that really has intuitive sense, but it was also designed to explain the highest stakes uh, conflict possible, um, which is control of Western Europe, its riches, its workers, its you know political uh, value in the context of the height of the Cold War, the true height of the Cold War. And one of the ways that we addressed this was in um, our conjoint experiments, which allowed us to vary a whole bunch of factors. Um, we varied the anticipated probability of success. We varied the anticipated costs of an intervention. Um, and what we found was, you know, people were really sensitive to success. If something was not going to succeed, um, that was a big red flag. People did not want to interfere. Um, if there were going to be um, high casualties, well, people just did not want to um, get involved. Um, you know, so the costs uh, of, of intervention, um, the likelihood that uh, there would be retaliation against the United States, these mattered a lot to folks. Um, and in our conjoint experiment, we found that you know you could have several military personnel. Uh, killed. You could have dozens of U.S. military personnel killed. At levels that seemed to reflect tripwire logic, it just didn't rise to the level of bolstering public support. You know, things that tripwire proponents have been skeptical of, whether the United States has a treaty uh, with the invaded country, for instance, they did matter a lot. Um, and this is a finding that, along with skepticism of tripwires, uh, has uh, become a little bit more prominent as other researchers have found evidence uh, consistent with the views that tripwire mattered. And why do you think that is? Making... Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think that treaties are valuable to people? It's not obvious to me. It's it's not obvious, right? Um, I think that some of this actually just comes back to 
you think about the classic cases, right? Um, you know, the UK in 1914, when Belgium is invaded, um, you know, despite all the German um, bluster about this just being a scrap of paper, uh, Britain's commitment to Belgian neutrality, that is one of the factors that tips Britain into um, invading. Uh, there seems to be something about the act of making a commitment uh, that really does matter to folks. And um, I've seen this in other work I've conducted um, uh, regarding um, U.S. commitments to NATO. Um, a couple of researchers at Stanford and Wisconsin have found this in their own studies, including a cross-national study. So it's not just Americans who worry, who care about uh, NATO commitments. Um, there is something about the act of making a political commitment that really seems to engage public audiences at a deeper level. And I think we need to understand that mechanism better. Um, the other thing is, is that I don't want necessarily speak for Steve on this point, but these findings were surprising to us. We did not set out to say like, oh, tripwires don't matter at all. We were just trying to say like, how much do they matter? And when we came back and we found like, well, they don't matter all that much. That was, that was very surprising because this is a gambit that a lot of folks, um, have said they rely on, that it seems that uh, countries really rely upon, uh, and instead it seems like countries are looking in the wrong place, that the notion that a tripwire force, and if you really take the definition seriously, a tripwire force is almost a token force. It should not, by definition, affect battlefield prospects. It should not do anything more than essentially leave hostages to fortune. Um, which is why some folks think that this could be uh, a major route of entrapment for U.S. foreign policy. It just doesn't seem to work like that. Um, Americans seem to care more about the fundamentals of a conflict. They seem to care more about what's at stake, what their interests are, the political dimensions. Um, and they also, you know, if the military is engaged, I would wager it's at least consistent with our results they want to win and they don't want to see troops um, be put in harm's way uh, as as hostages, as folks who are only there to die. They want them to fight and win. Um, and that is that is something that tripwire logic in the classical formulation just did not engage because it was just having those you know brave soldiers in West Berlin there to be slaughtered um, so that we would have an excuse to launch the B-52s and launch the ICBMs. Um, and instead, you know, People take war very seriously, uh, and um, they they really want to make sure that there's a genuine reason to get involved instead of just having um, any you know is looking for any excuse to get involved. I, I think there's there's a sense in which uh, treaties are a higher bar, at least in the context of the United States, right? Because um, they have to go through the Senate. Uh, and so there's definitely a sense, um, at least during the early part of the Cold War, uh, that U.S. officials are aware of this uh, and, they, and they kind of see small military deployments as an easier way to signal commitment than to get a treaty through, uh, through the Senate. Um, and so that, you know, that might be a reason um, that treaties seem to be more meaningful to, um, to a range of audiences. Uh, there's work that suggests that um, that the reason that people respond to treaty commitments has to do with um, sort of uh, uh, both moral concerns about being seen as uh, as having done the right thing in, in carrying through a treaty obligation and also um, and also uh, sort of concerns about international reputation um, that might not uh, be as meaningful 
uh, in the context of a tripwire commitment because it's not as clear cut, right? There, there, there are actually cases in which, um, uh, in which there have been the U.S. has sort of made tripwire deployments um, in ways that that were intended to hide them from the domestic audiences, uh, audience, which is right raises all kinds of questions about how exactly they thought this was going to work, right? That's on uh, uh, sort of an answer to the to the to the question about treaties. But just sort of one other point, though, is that I don't I don't know that it's necessarily true that all treaties uh, are are seen as sort of uh, as uh, more reliable than tripwire commitment or military commitments, right? So so for instance, right, like um, Thailand is excited about CETO initially, and then and then sort of comes to see this as basically meaningless, and. After that point, there's talk about a plate glass commitment to Thailand to kind of make up for the fact that CETO is not NATO. Yeah, I, I think that the evidence that we have that is strongest for the uh, importance of treaties is actually for NATO. Um, so in our work, we just talked about having a treaty in one of the experiments, and that was important. It was more important than a tripwire uh uh, deployment. Um, but I think that the strongest effects that we have seen specifically have to do with NATO. Um, there's something about being in NATO. There's something about the difference about being in NATO versus not being in NATO that really seems to matter to Americans. So you could say that this is less a treaty effect and more a NATO effect. Um, but that still, I, th I think, is, is meaningful. Um, and it could just be that no other treaty commitment is going to have the uh, 70, almost 80 years worth of history that NATO involvement has uh, gotten. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up is we've been talking about strange Lovian um, effects, and we've been talking about mechanisms. You know, why is it that a tripwire could work? Why is it a tripwire could not work? Why treaties? Why reputation? Why all these things? You know, if you really get into uh, the way that people talked very loosely in the 1960s about tripwires, you'd come up with um, serious people saying things like, well, if one American soldier dies, um, then the entire resolve of the United States would be committed. Um, and if you get into the footnotes of some, you know, uh, resources, you'll even start to see people saying things, uh, Tom Schelling uh, conjectures that it's actually the wives and children of the American soldiers stationed in Germany. Um, I believe there's a French general that uh, Lawrence uh, Friedman cites as saying that if the busload of school children is killed, that that would trigger this. Well, we even tested this. Um, and uh, at least the presence of civilians, because, you know, when we talk about a place like uh, let's say Western Europe, uh, or Central Europe, or Eastern Europe, or South Korea today. You know, South Korea. I think the best number we could come up was uh, there's something like a hundred thousand American civilians who live there now, and presumably any conflict would immediately engage them. Separating out the political and the moral and the um, costs and success and uh, the trade value and everything else about war, people just. Americans who responded to our surveys are really cold-blooded about that. Like, okay, those are sunk costs. And kind of rationally, they're saying you don't act on the basis of sunk costs. You act on the basis of your calculations of future risk and reward. Um, in some work that we're doing now and, and preparing, I will say that there might be some traces of a more emotional calculation, but it's still not at the, you know, let's burn the world down level that Schelling uh, was discussing. Um, I want to ask a, a question that's not directly relevant to your research question, um, but it's probably born out of my general unease with public opinion polls and, and surveys and such. But one thing that I, that 
was thinking when I was reading your survey results is that these are results from Americans who are used to a status quo where the United States military is splayed out all over the world and where the United States engages in very frequent military interventions for the sake of relatively remote interests. And one thing you find is, as we've been talking about is that respondents are actually paying close attention to the stakes involved in a particular conflict um, and the likely cost of es escalation. And that is super interesting. But there's a question that we can't really get to experimentally of how Americans might assess these different conflict scenarios that you guys included in the survey, Korean Peninsula or defending the Baltics, if they had a different status quo. Their assessment of the stakes in those situations is in large part a reflection of the political context out of which it comes. And in American politics, that's going to skew the baseline for what, what's considered high enough stakes to go to war. If Americans weren't so used to the status quo and suddenly they were asked these questions about intervening in Estonia or Korea or Timbuktu or wherever, you know, it would probably be ridiculous on its face. Um, like you couldn't conduct these surveys in Switzerland. No Swiss Joe Sixpack is hanging out in Zurich somewhere being asked about Swiss military contingencies for South America or something. Um, the political context there is one of neutrality and non-intervention. Ordinary Canadian citizens aren't sitting around debating Canadian military contingencies for the thousands of tripwire forces that they don't have peppered throughout Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. Um, so this is like a peculiarly American way of engaging with the world. And I don't even think the average American understands that. It's the water they're swimming in, so to speak. And I guess I just wonder if you guys have anything to say about that or public opinion polling in general. Let me um, kind of hazard a, a few reactions there, and then Steve can come in with what I'm sure will be uh, more considered ones. Um, one interesting thing is actually the Canadians do talk about this because um, in the context of Europe, uh, Canadian troops have been involved with um, the uh, EFP, the Enhanced Forward Presence, uh, which is the NATO, don't call it a tripwire, but it's kind of a tripwire, uh, deployment to the Baltics um, that pre-Ukraine was meant to be a symbol of solidarity and alliance solidarity. Uh, so the Canadian informed public does think about this. And I we know for sure, because this just happened to be one of the cases, I don't think we mentioned it in this paper, uh, when international affairs professors have been brought on um, in the media to explain why why does Ottawa send our troops there? They all say, well, it's a tripwire. It's a way of making sure that we have a credible presence. And therefore, by making this deterrent threat more credible, we are deterring the possibility of more conflict. Um, you know, in a certain way, um, you know, we have spent a lot of time thinking about like, what do these results mean? And we're careful, diligent academics, and we're, you know, working through um, what has become kind of a, a years long project to think about the mechanisms. And so I don't want to prejudge what our mechanisms will say. I will say that at the very least, we want to bring a lot more clarity to this debate, um, where people have, I think, loosely thrown around military commitments, tripwire commitments, and political commitments as if they're the same thing. And what our results suggest is we really need to be cautious about this. Um, so, John, for instance, your own work, which has talked about U.S. military deployments, um, our results suggest that there would be a big difference in how the American public would judge in the context of running don't call it an empire, uh, in the context of, of running a major global commitment, 
military forces that are there to really fight and win battles versus military commitments that are only there to serve as tripwires. Um, and they would also really want to make sure that if a tripwire deployment is made, that it is only made for the highest uh, value targets, that it's only there to, to defend uh, interests that are of the highest value. Where does that you know leave NATO commitments, Eastern Europe, the Baltics? You can drill down and you can start to wonder about where those lines would be drawn. Um, but it does seem to be the case that folks think differently about what we used to call brushfire wars and what these kinds of deployments in the world of great power competition would mean. I think the clarity comes with, uh, you know, if people are assuming that they can solve great power competition through the judicious use of tripwire forces, our results suggest that that might be misguided. You really have to be clear about what the costs and benefits are of the positions you're taking. Um, and maybe that's going to lead to a recurrence of uh, what folks used to call the great debate, right? Um, but at the very least, we can, instead of being, you know, uh, what was Dean Atkinson's uh, phrase, um, clearer than the truth, well, we can actually just talk about what the truth is. Uh, and I think that that would be uh, something that's very important because we're starting to talk about a world in which everything from political warfare to great power warfare seems to be back on the agenda. and our inquiry into the internet into the intellectual history of tripwires suggests that there's just a lot of cobwebs uh, and and a lot of um mistaken beliefs about what should work why it should work and how it should work yeah so so john you asked um what what i've kind of interpreted as a question about the scope conditions of the findings right so is the theorized tripwire effect uh, should it be stronger among Americans because they've been socialized to experience the world as basically their backyard? And so, uh, you know, that's possible. If we had more money, we would do, I mean, I would love to do this uh, among Brits, right? Uh, it actually, it actually, uh, the, the tripwire metaphor originated among Brits. Um, so I, I would, I, I would, I would be very interested in seeing if this traveled outside the U.S. Um but I, I would also say that that I think that the logic of your question implies that um, that like the effect should be the strongest now because Americans have we've been living in a world for seventy years or or you know or maybe since the end of the Cold War uh, of American primacy right um, where challenges uh, you know halfway around the world feel like challenges to a status quo that favors Americans which should make them willing to run risks to meet those challenges. Uh, and actually, we find that that's not true. And so, and so, um, it might it might actually be the case that um, I mean, again, the, the logic of the question I think implies that um, if you run this back forty years, that you find an even weaker effect, right? Uh, and then w one other point um, uh, is that I, I actually think um, one of the reasons that this work is important, one of the reasons that the concept is important, is because uh, I think you know since the since the fifties. The tripwire metaphor and related metaphors um, have enabled uh, basically sort of um, power projection on the cheap, right? The idea that you can that you can reassure allies, partners without making them allies. You can deter um, without actually preparing to fight seriously, um, because if you couldn't, then you might have to actually prioritize, right? And so the persistence of this metaphor. 
enables the representation of foreign policy that makes that seem reasonable. Um, for instance, I mean, right, there's this debate over sort of what to do with Ukraine post-war. Uh, and just a couple of weeks ago, I, th I think I read in The Economist that, you know, well, one of the, you know, you're not going to let Ukraine into NATO, but maybe you could, they literally used the word tripwire, put a trip, tripwire forces into Ukraine um, as if that would, um, uh, as if that would be a credible deterrent, right? Um, but what that would really be doing is, is sort of allowing us to avoid this, really answering this really hard question, which is how much do we actually, how much are we willing to pay, um, uh, right, to to deter future aggression against Ukraine. Okay, thank you for indulging me on that tangent. Um, I want to ask you about something that you allude to in the paper and you have in this conversation too, but which I feel like is something of a, a policy innovation of late, which is tripwire forces that are less formally called tripwire forces. And I'm thinking like really what comes to mind is the fact that we have troops in Syria who, and sometimes listening to policymakers and strategists, you get the sense that part of the idea is, you know, if so, if something goes down, they'll get caught up in the mix, and and we'll have, uh, you know, some justification to go in. And I've even talked to specialists on the, the question of war powers, who know that uh, you know proposals for replacing the two thousand one AUMF actually include this kind of factor. Like if we have troops in a place, then it will trigger further, uh, which we can call self-defense ridiculously. You know, So do you have anything to say about that trend in, in US foreign policy and whether it's distinct from tripwires as, you, as you've studied them and so on? So I, I, I would just say, I don't, I don't know that it's new. Um, uh, so you know, Paul, Paul was just was talking about sort of Schelling's early I mean, Schelling's really spitballing in like 58, 60 when he's writing what would become strategy of conflict. Um, but he's talking about, right? He's talking about like uh, the, a potential aggressor having to avoid the tourist high season, right? Uh, and, and using tourists as tripwires. Um, Schelling wasn't involved in, in making these decisions, but some people that were, were talking about U.S., troop deployments in the same way that you're talking about this in Syria. For instance, uh, I think it was Walt Rostow um, uh, talked about uh, U.S. trainers in Vietnam as plate glass window deployments or tripwires, right? So even though they're not there in order to, to, to be tripwires or plate glass, they're there to train, to train the, uh, the, the Vietnamese military, um, that they'd still be serving that purpose, right? That if, if there was something, something went bad, right? And it's Again, a lot of this is really fuzzy, poorly theorized, right? It's not really obvious how this works to to deter anything other than like a Chinese invasion of, of Vietnam, right? But nonetheless, he's using the, the the language, right? He's saying these are these are tripwires, these are play class windows. Yeah, I, I would add to that that you know um, some really prominent restrainers or restrainer adjacent folks um, have expressed exactly the skepticism that if we have tripwires everywhere or troops deployed everywhere, they will serve as tripwires and lead to much greater entanglements. Uh, and this is something we took very seriously because if you look at one variant of tripwire logic, it's not we have a commitment, the troops are there to back the commitment, therefore we will perform that commitment. One variant of tripwire uh, logic is literally 
troops killed, U.S. public calls for blood, president has to respond. And that's actually maybe the bluntest, nakedest version of this. Um, I'm not sure a whole heck of a lot of people would believe that, but you do sometimes get this gut sense that that's what they're assuming would happen. And that's important because time and again, when U.S. troops have been killed, presidents and the public have called for de-escalation. Um, I think the signal um, move here is, of course, uh, the bombing of the U.S. Marine bar barracks in Beirut, um, where the U.S. just left. And public opinion polls at the time said, even if this means the Soviets will dominate the Middle East, we got to leave. Like, the costs are too high. Um, in 1976, when some U.S. service members were killed in the DMZ, um, President Ford got an apology from the North Korean government, but obviously we didn't lay waste to North Korea. Um, back in 2017, if I'm remembering this right, um, in Niger, four U.S. service members were killed, and the reaction from Congress was almost verbatim, we had service members in Niger. Uh, so there does seem to be less of a chance of entrapment. And you can kind of see, I don't want to say that we have the knockout blow here. But if you think about empirical findings as being iron filings that kind of point you in a certain direction, our findings and other findings do seem to say that political commitments that are overt and that matter and that are taken with a measure of gravity do seem to have a different existence than just the presence or absence or death or wounding of American soldiers, um, which means that the risks of inadvertent entrapment may be lower than people are thinking. But on the other hand, um, you know, our results are also saying that if you're going to be in a place, if you're going to make a commitment, you can't just do it on the cheap. You really have to make sure that those folks are able to defend themselves, that they're able to take cover, that they're able to, you know, ride out the storm. And something that I think that we'd like to talk more about later on, not today, something that we have, um, Steve and I have thought a lot about, uh, are instances like the uh, January 2020 Iranian reprisals um, against U.S. service members and others in Iraq, where nobody died. I'm told that the casualties were quite severe, like traumatic brain injury is no walk in the park. Um, but the United States uh, killed uh, Soleimani, the Iranians responded, and that was it. Um, and a lot of work we're seeing that there's just it's very hard to get past those fire breaks. It's very hard to get in into an escalatory spiral. Um, and, you know, as we're seeing in Ukraine now, you can have overt, direct U.S. participation in the, uh, you know, war against uh, Russian invaders and have that be a manageable part of foreign policy. Um, yes, the contours of what this world is going to look like I'm not sure that we can um, all just look back to fail, say, for Dr. or Strangelove and say, like, oh, it's just going to be like that. Um, it's going to be a much weirder world, and it's a world that we need to figure out real fast. And uh, yeah, if anybody who is listening to this has money to throw at the problem, we have uh, <laughs> lots of questions that we want to answer. As, as we mentioned, you guys are very careful scholars, and you're careful not to overstate your findings and careful to mention all the other variables that could be at play. But um, what's the major policy takeaway from your research? Are you guys just bizarrely interested in this narrow theoretical abstraction? Or, uh, you know, do you have some, does your research underlie some 
desire to see a change to how we uh, do forward deployment and how we're postured? Partly the answer to your question is yes, or just, I, I, I'm just weirdly uh, interested in this. But no, no, it's not, not entirely. So I, I, I do think um, the, the study, as Paul suggested, um, surprised us. The result surprised us. I was expecting the policy implication of the, the result that I thought we were going to get uh, to be um, sending tripwire deployments around the world is a really good way to, to get entrapped into a bunch of conflicts. Uh, and so uh, the you know the policy implication is don't do this um, or think really hard about it. Uh, I think that that the policy implications of the results that we actually have are a lot more complicated. Um, so I'll I'll say two things. Um, one is that I think I mentioned this already, but I mean I I think um, that one of the big themes coming out of not just this paper, but a whole, you know, it's really a book project at this point, right? Is that this is a really important idea, tripwire theory is a really important idea. It's been central to U.S. foreign policy, not just U.S. foreign policy, but mostly to U.S. foreign policy since the early part of the Cold War. Um, and it's had a very specific, it plays a very specific function, which is to help policymakers avoid making hard choices. Uh, and so if you're worried about strategic insolvency, my my sense is that tripwire theory is a really important enabler of strategic insolvency. Um, so um, we need to know, you know, we need to know if there's anything to it or not. Um, and that's kind of what Paul and I are doing. And then the other, and the other, the other thing is, um, you know, I mean, this should matter a lot to our partners and allies, right? Um, many of whom are told, right, that. Um, yes, the U.S.'s commitment to your security is certain. We're going to send, a, a, you know, eight fighter jets uh, and base them uh, in your territory, and that's a that's a you know a, a marker of seriousness on our part. Um, and and some of them do kind of reason the way that we did, and and sort of link this to domestic politics and say, yeah, even if a, a Trump is in the White House again. Um, and so you're worried about NATO, right? If there are American troops in Poland and there's an attack, well, that's, that's okay, right? Uh, because even Trump couldn't withstand the domestic political pressure that would come from an attack on U.S. troops in Poland. And I think, you know, what our work shows is that, well, not so fast. And so if you're, uh, if you're a, a Baltic member of NATO or if you're an, a, another country that, that really relies on U.S. security guarantees, you should be interested in knowing whether tripwire commitments are reliable. Yeah, I, I think that this is actually getting at one of the big takeaways for me for policymakers. So if you're a policymaker, I think the bottom line up front is tripwires aren't magic. Um, you know, They're not magic in the sense that they're not going to inadvertently entrap you into a situation you didn't want to be in. Um, but they're also not magic in the sense that they don't fundamentally allow you to cheat out of strategic solvency. Um, and we have heard anecdotally that the troops who have been asked to do tripwire roles hate it. It is incredibly demoralizing to tell someone that you're there to be shot. Um, and so strategically, public opinion, at the level of troop morale, if you're making these commitments, make them with teeth, right? Like you have to make sure don't move eight jets in, move eight jets in. And, uh, you know, what's the Norwegian thing, the uh, NSAMS, the, you know, anti-air stuff, 
give folks the, you know, you don't want to put people in harm's way. You want to make sure that these are deployments that can do something. For me, the meta lesson of this, um, as Steve and I have been working on this and related projects, and we're also working on projects on our own and with other people, um, you know, uh, John, I, I think you know, I'm interested in popular culture and international relations. Um, you know, the Foundation TV series has moved away from what I thought was one of the great parts of the Foundation books, uh, which is in the books. You know, one of the refrains is violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. I think that what we are seeing with these results and with results that other research teams are finding is you can't just assume that violence is a way to um, obviate the need for successful strategy. Um, there's a lot in between complete isolation from the world and absolute balls to the wall, Curtis LeMay style, um, if they scratch us, we'll nuke them. Um, there's a lot of foreign policy strategies. There's a lot of ways to um, target public opinion in other states, to make commitments to others, to provide uh, measures short of war. You know, There's a lot of things that you can do that would make for, even if you want, a very robust foreign policy would still allow you to carry those out. Even if you're a restrainer and you don't want to put people in harm's way, there's a lot of other ways that you can talk about this. Um, Colin Call, uh, who's currently the number three at the uh, Pentagon, used to be a political scientist, actually off and on in the department where Steve and I got our PhDs. Uh, there is a report in Fred Kaplan's uh, most recent book about a war game in the Pentagon where they were doing the kind of Cold War scenario, um, and Russia launches a nuclear missile and it strikes, um, and everybody in the you know war game was saying like, well, They've launched one. We got to launch one. And Colin Call says, nope, stop. This is ridiculous. Russia has now used a nuclear weapon for the first time since the Second World War. They've used it in anger. The world is going to be agog. This is our time to get everyone from London to Berlin, to uh, 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 Beijing on board with a coalition to isolate and sanction and you know remove the Russian regime peacefully. Um, which I, I think is probably right. Uh, and I, I think that this is a way to um, avert what um, actually happened in the war game, which they then restarted. They did it a month later, and the war game came to the correct conclusion, and uh, the missiles started flying. Um, I, I think that our results show that the kind of Cold War mentality, that this is all about how to make escalation and retaliation automatic, no. The public doesn't want this. The retaliatory mechanisms aren't automatic. You can't cheat this. Uh, and you just have to be smarter and more flexible and more creative about what a strategy is going to be. Um, and so that is the meta lesson for policymakers, which is don't assume that there's a textbook or a recipe out there you can apply. Actually think about what's going on and craft real solutions to real problems, which is a lot harder, right? It would be great if we just had a recipe. Somehow I... Uh, rather frequently end up closing the show uh, with a reference to nuclear holocaust. I don't know how that happens, but Stephen, Paul, <laughs> thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, John. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you.